Richard Radio begins in 3, 2, 1. At our church, we have people repeat a prayer who want to place their faith in Christ. Jesus did all the hard part. He did everything but pray your prayer. I'm going to ask you just to pray with me right now. Just say these words with me. You can say those words every day for the rest of your life and die and be separated from God. The scripture does not say that Jesus Christ came to the nation of Israel and said that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, who would like to ask me into their hearts? It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Story time! This is a Wretched Radio. Let's use our imaginations for a moment. Shall we? Imagine there's life, intelligent life, on a foreign planet. They jump into their little spaceship, they zip to the Earth, and they stay in a Marriott hotel. They open up their nightstand and they see two books. One would be the Book of Mormon. Thankfully, they don't open that one up. But instead, they dive into that Bible that happens to still be in some hotel nightstands. And they start reading through the New Testament. One of them says, I'm sorry, let me just translate that for you. What do you think? This book is telling us about the relationship between church and state. Hey, this conversation could happen, and it certainly should be happening here. And my question is, if somebody who was foreign to the New Testament read it, what would they say the church's role is in the government? Most likely, it would take them a bit to find anything about that relationship. It needs to be sorted by studying the entirety of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, to see how it is that God defines how the planet is operating. He has done it through realms of jurisdictional authority. You are supposed to be running yourself. Parents are supposed to be running a home. Bosses supposed to be running the business. Pastors to be leading the church and magistrates who are to bear the sword as they run the government. That's how God set it up. Now, you need to read through it to get that type of clarity on those realms because you don't really see a Bible verse that lays it out the exact way that I just did, but it does lay it out. And if you went looking for Bible verses that specifically talked about the government, you will find that there are some stories. For instance, John the Baptist, while he was talking to the government and he got killed, Jesus Christ once made reference to a leader calling him a fox. When asked about taxes, he said, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. When you see Jesus interacting with the government, we don't see him fighting, resisting, rebelling or revolting. We see him submitting even to a terrible government that executed him. Jump into the book of Acts. You see Paul being arrested by the Roman government, put in jail, put on trial. And what do we see when Paul pleads his case? Does he say, Festus, you shouldn't be using your authority this way. 
The Bible says that you are under the sovereignty of God and you are not behaving the way that you should be. Now, frankly, Paul could have said that. You, you can preach to the magistrate that way, but you don't see Paul pleading his case in that way. What was Festus's response? Paul, you're preaching. You keep it up, you're going to make me a Christian. Hmm, that's telling. Read your epistles, and what do you see? A few verses that do talk about the government, and they are emphatically clear. Titus 3, 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, that Christians are to submit, more than that, honor, pray for, those in authority. You read the book of Revelation, and what do you see about governments? Ultimately, they get squashed. Ultimately, they are put under subjection of King Jesus. Now, if indeed that has been a reasonable representation of what the New Testament teaches about government, church, realms of authority, what would an alien conclude about Christian nationalism? Would they agree based on their plain reading of the New Testament? Would they pull out an idea that somehow, in some form, the Christian church and the government have some sort of relationship where the nation is put under the authority of church slash Christian principles? Well, if you ask Scott Aniel over at G3, he would say he's not seeing it anywhere in the New Testament. A headline, Christian Faithfulness, the Biblical Alternative to Christian Nationalism. Headline followed by this great opening sentence. I do like it when somebody gets to the point. Don't you? I was reading an article last night. It, that very catchy headline. It said, do evangelicals believe Trump is Jesus? Okay, what's going on with this? Let me, <laughs> you got me, I'm in. Where, where's the part about people believing that Trump is Jesus? Page two, not there. Page three, not there. People, stop burying the lead, will you? Get to the point. Have your opening paragraph match your headline. Christian nationalism, writes Scott Aniel, Aniel Ochi 3 Here's one of the biggest problems. I object to what has come to be called Christian nationalism. We simply don't find anything like it in the New Testament. Can you build a case for it? Um, yeah, you can, but you have to work really, really hard. And it has been my experience when somebody has to labor so diligently, painstakingly to build a case based on this. And if you take a look at that, and if we consider this, and if this is true about that, therefore, uh, you're standing on shaky ground. It appears Scott Aniel says Christian nationalism is standing on that ground. Let's dive in, shall we? In this essay, writes Scott, I'd like to sketch what I believe is the biblical alternative to Christian nationalism. Christian faithfulness brought this up perhaps a day or two ago, referencing this particular article. The conversation about any issue can always become very convoluted because we do share some common things with people. But that doesn't mean we're in full agreement with people. A bad illustration, but... Hey, most of them are, frankly. 
uh, I, I go to church. A Roman Catholic would say, I go to church. Would we conclude, therefore, we're in alignment on all things? The answer is no. Just because there's some overlap, some similarities, it doesn't mean totality of agreement. And that's what Scott points out. Allow me to acknowledge an inherent problem in this that I believe has led to a lot of confusion. And there's so much confusion, which is why, again, we really need to proceed with caution unless we want to break some relationships with brothers and sisters. We we really better have this conversation uh, thoughtfully uh, without being aggressive or nasty or divisive. We're early in a complex conversation. This is an historical conversation that has gone on for centuries. Aniel writes this. Everything about what I'm going to describe as New Testament Christian faithfulness is also part of Christian nationalism. See the problem? In other words, Christian nationalists will read what I write here and say, I agree with that. That's Christian nationalism. And Aniel rejects that. He said, no, Christian nationalists want Christian faithfulness, but they want more than this. That is a point well worth remembering. So he writes this, I'm about to sketch the New Testament picture of Christian faithfulness. And most of all, most or all Christian nationalists would also promote the very same ideals, but they want more. So what is Christian nationalism? Here's the working definition from Stephen Wolf, the case for Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is a totality of national action consisting of civil laws, social customs conducted by a Christian nation as a Christian nation in order to procure for itself both earthly and heavenly good in Christ. We saw that definition on display at the coronation of King Charles, didn't we? Aniel writes, Christian nationalism, a desire to make a nation externally Christian in terms of culture and laws, because Christian nationalists believe this is what will be best for its citizens. Well, that's true, isn't it? We agree with that. But that doesn't mean that what would be best is what the church has the right or authority to impose, because it's not our job description. We agree that Christian laws are always going to be better. Why? Because they're informed by the mind of God. But that is where perhaps the similarities start to diverge from Christian nationalism and Christian faithfulness. Let us continue to sort the matter as humbly, patiently, lovingly as we can, as we sort out a subject that I think an alien <laughs> would conclude, huh, it seems the New Testament is relatively clear on this subject. I mean, I translated that from... This is Wretched Radio. Ah, some good news. Two encouragements from the Tomorrow Clubs. They have hundreds of weekly kids meeting clubs in Eastern Europe, but now they've expanded to Africa. 
And the kids are swarming the Tomorrow Clubs. They have never seen greater attendance than the hundreds of new clubs that they are opening up in Africa. That should encourage all of us. The gospel is going forth and reaching kids in unreached places. Encouragement number two, would you like to become a Tomorrow Clubs ministry partner? Your support will help the Tomorrow Clubs open up even more Tomorrow Clubs and reach even more kids with the gospel. Please consider becoming a ministry partner at tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Hey, thank you so much for listening to Ratchet Radio today. And I want to say thank you to our ongoing monthly gospel partners. You guys are the bee's knees, the creme de la creme, the top notch supporters. And you are the ones that keep us going strong. We're incredibly grateful for your unwavering commitment to standing firm with us and reaching millions of people worldwide. In fact, Josh wrote in to say, quote, thank you for airing the content of faithful preachers. Ratchet has served as a valuable resource to me for doctrine, teaching, cultural engagement, your support is what makes that possible. So thank you, Gospel Partner, for continuing to stand firm with us. Together, we're making a difference, and we just want to ask for your ongoing commitment in continuing to support the ministry here at Wretched. Now, if you're not already a monthly Gospel Partner, would you prayerfully consider becoming one? Just log on to wretched.org slash donate or text the word Wretched to the number 44321. Wretched. Amazing grace. Amazing gospel. I know how you're feeling at the thought of switching from traditional health insurance to MediShare, which is affordable biblical health sharing. That's a big decision, and it can be kind of scary, which is why Mrs. Freel and I researched MediShare and determined, yeah, we can trust this ministry, Christians paying for the health needs of other Christians. It's a magnificent ministry, 98% member satisfaction rate. It's amazing. The average family saves $500 per month. If that sounds intriguing, and I hope it does, please do your research. Visit metashare.com slash wretched, metashare.com slash wretched, or call them and talk to a really nice person at 844-34-BIBLE, 844-34-BIBLE, 844-34-BIBLE. Important dates in Christian history. 1793. William Carey sails as a missionary to India. In the next 40 years, he would oversee more Bible translations than had previously been produced in all of Christian history. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Sorry, I speak such fluent alienese. This is Wretched Radio. What does the New Testament teach about the relationship between church and state? That is the question du jour. It is also the question of the day. People are asking it. People are answering it. And what we're discovering is there's shades of understandings of what jurisdictional realms look like. Where do the lines cross? Do they cross at all? How separate are they? Should a Christian even be engaged in that realm? Or some would say, just forget about it. We, we don't worry about government at all. Others would say, hold on. 
the church should be a part of the government. If you want somebody like a King Charles, who is a head of the magistrate and the head of the church, you have got yourself some polar opposite ideas with shades of distinctions of a thousand kinds mingled therein. I wonder what the possibilities are, what the statistics would be. Let's just say I'm making up a number. There are 20 different understandings, components. That's a better word. There's 20 components of understanding the role of church and state from far left to far right. Let's just say it's 20. Inside of that 20, where's a statistician or artificial intelligence when we need them? So let's just say you agree with somebody on 19 things, but disagree on the one. How many of those configurate? How many thousands of differences then could there be? I, I don't know how to do that math. Somebody does, but there must be thousands of different positions and you're going to search high and low to find somebody. Okay, do you agree on three and 17, but not on 14 and two? Okay, we're in alignment with one another. You're you're probably not going to bump into those people much. Instead, we're going to have differences of understanding on this and we should be having this conversation now because if we don't have it now, This has all of the potential volatility, I think even more dynamite than even CRT, because this one is passionate for all of us. Why? Because we all have to live under a government and we live in a time where politics, ooh, it is a favorite conversation, isn't it? Seriously, even you conservative biblicists who find a lot of the banter on cable news to be really destructive, we talk about it, don't we? Because it affects us and it's going to affect our children. So let's have it now, shall we? Scott Aniel offering his take on what he prefers to Christian nationalism, and that is Christian faithfulness. And here's why. In 313, the emperor, Constantine, legalized Christianity. He didn't make it the religion of the state. He just said, you can't persecute those people anymore. They are recognized as a people group that need to be defended. So quit killing Christians. That was that was a good law, right? 392, Emperor Theodosius declared Christianity to be the established religion of the Roman Empire, outlawing all other religions. Now, we, I think, can appreciate without being speculative that if we are going to call this a Christian nation with Christian laws, it's really not a far step away from banning all other religious voices. That is one of the interesting angles of what happened with the coronation of King Charles, isn't it? That they had to become inclusive. They had a Sikh and, a, and they had a, a, a rabbi and a Hindu in the processional. And uh, what was that all about? And why did King Charles keep saying, yeah, I'm an Anglican, but hey, don't worry. You're going to be protected here because there are people who feel like, wait a second. If the Anglican church is the authorized religion of this government, uh, that's problematic for me. Let me return to Scott Aniel's treatment of history. In essence, the church and state 
eventually united, forming what many call Christendom. And church leaders literally wanted to turn the empire into a theocracy like Israel, climaxing in the Holy Roman Empire. This very quickly created a lot of nominal Christianity. That's one of Scott's concerns, that, that we would have just that. You would go ahead, go to Great Britain and ask people. Now, it's a diminishing number. I think it's under 50% now. And say, are you a Christian? Yeah, cool. Uh, what kind? Oh, I, you know, Anglican church. Well, whatever. What are they? They're nominal at best. I prefer the term false converts. They aren't genuine Christians. They are people who are under a delusion. And Scott's concern is we are going to be assisting in that delusion. The reformers, he writes, especially Luther and Calvin, argued against the church-state union by articulating a two-kingdom theology. Now, in fairness, it depends on when you read Luther and Calvin, because their, their positions were evolving on the subject. Nevertheless, he writes, but Calvin and Luther were unable to completely disentangle themselves from socio-political ties during their lives. True. The Church of England especially maintained a close union between church and state. By the way, if you think about Ulrich Zwingli, yeah, that's that's a study. He's he's one of the forgotten reformers, unfortunately. The Swiss reformer in Zurich died on the battlefield against Roman Catholics when they quartered him. Why? Because he was fighting for a Protestant canton and he went to war and died on a battlefield. Why? Because there was a belief that church and state are united far more than the American experience would suggest. It really wasn't until the early Baptist in England and a few groups prior to Baptists that we find a clear articulation of the need to recover a separation of church and state. Interesting. The state influenced the founding. The separation of church and state influenced the founding of the United States of America. And now we are being challenged to consider anew what that looks like as a growing number of voices are saying, let's take a look at what was going on in Europe. Let's read our Puritan forefathers who were just as enmeshed in a mingling of church and state, uh, far, far more so than we are. They wrote in that context. And so going back, there are people who are saying, look, we've got some really great dead Puritans who would agree with some brand of Christian nationalism. And that's why, for my money, this debate needs to be exclusively biblical. If you find yourself in a debate with somebody and you're really trying to define the Christian position on the roles of church and state, you would do well to not allow, this is what that dead guy said. This is what this dead guy said. Because they were simmering in an understanding of church and state that is totally foreign to, to the goo that you were baked in. Now, Aniel rightly says, we're not supposed to just sit back and say we're citizens of another kingdom, so none of this matters. He does not say that at all, but he does call for, hey, we're an, we're an exiled people. Dual citizens. We're resident aliens. We are citizens of the redemptive kingdom first and foremost. But yes, 
We do have a foot in this earthly kingdom, and we should seek to do good, and we should most certainly seek to evangelize and bring people in to the spiritual kingdom. But he concludes this, the overarching character of the New Testament's description of Christians is as God's unique people, citizens of a heavenly kingdom, who live in the kingdoms of men as resident aliens. We are in this world. He's left us here for a purpose, but it's not our home. We're just a passing through. We're sojourners, not of the Jim Wallace brand, and we are exiles. The New Testament prescribes Christian faithfulness. I would even add to that Christian peculiarity that we're otherly types of folks. Our mission as the church is to make disciples. So we ought to just preach the gospel and go to church and not really care about anything that happens in the world. No, says Aniel, we do care. That isn't right. But our primary concern is the souls of men where they will be residing for eternity. Yes, we vote. Yes, we can get involved in politics, but when we try to incorporate a, an authority from the realm of the church, this is hard. I get this because it's like, wait a second, you're bringing your Christian values and opinions into politics, but you're saying they shouldn't blend. Kind of. You, you bring yours into it, individual. And you go about the business of walking around the earthly halls of power, trying to influence, trying to persuade, trying to pass legislation that have been informed by your Christian values. But that's different than the church saying, government, we're here and we want to make sure that you are imposing nothing but Christian laws. Furthermore, we would like to give you at least one of the smaller keys on the keychain of the keys of the kingdom to have you make sure that the church doesn't have any heretics and there are no blasphemers. What would an alien say? Ah. The bigger question is, what would you say is the New Testament tenor about the role between church and state? This is Wretched Radio. And it's now time for a Wretched News Break here on Wretched Radio. I'm Jimmy Hicks. And we start with a story about Planned Parenthood because who doesn't want to hear a good story about Planned Parenthood? Oh, wait, there's never a good story about Planned Parenthood, especially this one because they're throwing their weight behind a multi-million dollar effort to enshrine abortion into the Florida Constitution. And we switch gears to Anheuser-Busch, who is feeling the sting of the free market. That's right. No one who buys anything is obligated to buy your thing. And following the Dylan Mulvaney debacle, they're seeing their sales take a steep plunge as now a multinational bank has downgraded their stock status. Maybe they'll take it to heart, realizing consumers decided they prefer their brew without a side of controversy. Heading to Ohio now, where we meet a reverend who decided that his sacred space was the perfect place for Drag Queen Story Hour. You know why? Well, he called it a sacred work. That's why. I think he missed that class in seminary on distinguishing between sacred and secular. Might need a refresher on Ephesians 5.11. And in the retail world, Target is making a bold statement. They always make bold statements, don't they? With their latest Pride Collection. It includes kids' books and rainbow items, even for babies, because they have pride too, right? 
Well, the Southern Baptist Convention is in the news, unfortunately. The largest Protestant body in the United States got a bit smaller in 2022. Nearly half a million members bid farewell to the SBC and 416 congregations. The largest decline in nearly a century. And while we all know the reason why, let's continue to pray for discernment and unity among our brothers and sisters in Christ. A bit of good news from Arkansas, where the state has awarded $1 million in grants to pro-life pregnancy centers. Unlike California, which we told you about yesterday. And finally, troubling update from Washington State, where Governor Jay Inslee signed a bill allowing the state to keep kids from their parents for secret abortions. Let me read that again. A bill that allows the state to keep kids from their parents for secret abortions. Prayers are certainly needed for leadership with wisdom and compassion in the state of Washington. And that's been your Wretched News Break. More Wretched Radio is straight ahead. I'm Jimmy Hicks. Books of the Bible. The Apostle Peter wrote to the elect exiles who were facing persecution for the sake of Christ. Peter exhorted them to trust God and to continue living godly lives. He reminds them of their hope in Christ and their high calling. When you want to learn joyful obedience, no matter what your circumstances, look to 1 Peter. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Is there a Trojan horse in your church? This is Wretched Radio, a very provocative article from the American Reformer written by one Michael Clary, claiming that there's a Trojan horse inside of evangelical Christianity. I would suggest there's lots of those. His particular Trojan horse is the horse that is called contextualization. Maybe you're not familiar with the term. Pretty self-explanatory. It's got the word context in there. So you consider your context, deliver your message, so that the audience in this particular zip code will get it. Now, we do that, don't we? We we do. If you don't realize, we, we do. Because we are informed by how we grew up, where we grew up, the language that we spoke, the movies that we watched, shared commonalities, watching football, the super, all of those things are a part of us. And we deliver a sermon, an expository sermon, contextualizing it so that this audience will get it. But that isn't the concern of Michael Clary. The contextualization that worries him is the version that says we need to really study society, understand the stories that they value, and then show them that the Christian story is a helpful story because of the similarities it shares with some of these national stories. And in order to do that, we therefore change the language of our Christian ease so that the world doesn't think we're too, you know, Christian. And he's pointing out that's a problem. And it is a problem that doesn't end with just you using language that's a little bit alien and foreign, same thing for you, to the Christian. A good example, this would this would be an example, and please note, if somebody has used this phrasing, it doesn't mean that they are a contextualizer of the bad sort. 
But how many times have we heard this? Hey, we're just a we're just a group of needy people, aren't we? We're just just needy. And you know, we all have a past and there's just we'd we'd like to have some do-overs with some things. But I gotta tell you, God loves you. Have you heard that message? I have. And you whiff something that doesn't smell quite right, and rightly so. And it's not to suggest that we can't say that we are messy people because we are. We're a broken people. We do have regrets. We would like to be able to go back and not do that thing that haunts us to this day. But that's not what contextualization is. It's rejecting Christian language to make us sound relevant, relatable, entering into people's messy lives so that they will join us as a fellow messy life sojourner, which is one of the reasons why you see the word faith journey a lot. We used to call that the process of sanctification. They call it a faith journey. So what's missing with, you know, we're just people with messy, broken lives and you know, we've, 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 just, we've, we've all made mistakes, haven't we? What's missing in that? Sin, law-breaking, consequences, the wages for sin. In other words, what's missing is biblical language. And the irony of this is the folks who have been promoting the contextualism that is being defined in this American Reformer article, I, I will trust they were well-intentioned. They want to win people. But this fellow says the exact opposite is happening. And he knows whereof he speaks because he was a contextualizer for years and years. He talks about being in ministry now for 20 years, but he spent the first five years, 20 years ago, learning about contextualization, the art of adapting the gospel message to a specific audience. And once again, this this is where... We find ourselves so often in the weeds and getting tangled up and finding no commonality or agreement. We'd all go, well, yeah, you wait a second. Dude, the way you're talking right now is kind of contextualizing. It's very American. Yeah, but that doesn't make me a contextualizer of this sort. Yes, we all contextualize, but that doesn't mean we should be contextualizers to the point where the Christian faith loses all of its Christian flavor and distinctives. The folks who've invented this, they wanted to win people. This guy's saying, I have learned just the opposite has happened. During this time, I learned the concept of incarnational ministry. You immerse yourself in your target culture to become Jesus to them. So go to the same coffee shop every day. Never talk about Jesus. Just get in there, become Jesus to them. Learn their stories and speak their language to communicate the gospel more effectively to them. And underneath contextualism, I would suggest to you, was smuggled the movie sermon series. See? See, look, look. It's just like Star Wars. It's like Christianity. Darth Vader's the devil. Get it? See? We're relevant. He writes this, I can attest that a whole generation of church planters and pastors were trained in this way, and 20 years in is enough time to evaluate the movement. And he concludes, contextualization, as commonly practiced, is a Trojan horse 
for worldly propaganda that threatens the future vitality of the church. There's a claim, isn't it? That liberalism is being smuggled in. Now, how intentional that is, I don't know everybody's heart. But his concern is that when we try to make Christianity look worldly, then we become worldly. It always goes this way. It always rolls downhill, doesn't it? It starts out with, hey, instead of using the word sin, um, use the word regrets. That's that's close enough. And the next thing you know, we're calling them boo-boos and hiccups. Because it just keeps getting softer and softer and watered down and watered down. Now, this does not mean that the alternative is is to become the the Westboro Baptists and yelling at people and telling everybody we hate them and they're just going to hell. That's biblical language. Yeah, it's not contextualized very well, but we don't want that alternative. We, We want to be speaking truth biblically so that people get it, but we don't want to be compromised to the point that it appears many are because it is inevitable. In other words, we got to watch the ditches on this one, too. He writes, when the preacher soften the Bible's words to appeal to non-Christians, the church follows suit. We use spiritual baby talk. And when baby talk is all you hear, Baby talk is all you speak. This is how you contextualize the word of God right out of the church. And we've seen it, haven't we? And this is why it is so shocking when you go to read a hymnal inside of a a Methodist church, inside of an Episcopalian church. Whoa! Because dead people wrote that hundreds of years ago, that liturgy. Whoa, it's amazing! But that's not the way they talk in the pulpit. Why? Because they've capitulated the culture through contextualization. They didn't want to be deemed as being mean, ugly, nasty, unaccepting, or intolerant. And the next thing you know, what comes out of the pulpit and out of the mouths of the parishioners doesn't sound anything like Christianity. Paul, 2 Corinthians, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Whoa, that seems to be a direct shot at contextualization, isn't it? It's got a negative and a positive statement. He said, hey, we renounce the tactic of salesmanship, manipulation, watering down, covering up, keeping it till they may be. Start becoming a regular attender, and then we'll get him in a small group, maybe. He refused to tamper with God's word, but positively, he was committed to an open statement of the truth. He would not manipulate. He didn't use tactics and strategies. That's why whenever we see these books come out that offer the new way to reach people, be careful. You've probably got somebody who's coming up with an underhanded way Not intentionally, perhaps, but because they don't want to be seen as one who wields a knife with sharp edges. They want a sword that is turned into a feather duster. Well-intentioned, let's grant that. But the effects of that are the very opposite of what they're actually hoping for. We need to follow 
Paul in this regard. Furthermore, we need to follow Jesus in this regard. You consider his comment about the Tower of Siloam. This would have been a time, if contextualization were the thing, we would have seen Jesus model it. You know, these people, the 13 people that got killed, Tower of Siloam fell on them. Um, you know, life's scary, isn't it? And got to be careful out there because, you know, you you really just never know, do you? I mean, life can be kind of, you know, fleeting, right? No. Repent or you too will perish. Jesus wasn't a contextualizer. That should be enough. This is Wretched Radio. Busy, busy, busy. Last year, Preborn Ministries provided over 92,000 ultrasounds. 54,000 babies were saved. 69 ultrasound machines were placed. 10,000 people responded to the gospel. Preborn Ministries, very busy, saving babies, saving souls. Would you please consider partnering with Preborn Ministries? $28 per ultrasound, five ultrasounds, $140. Yes, they are expensive, but they save lives. And Preborn Ministries uses good equipment with trained specialists, which is why the success rates are so staggeringly high at saving lives with preborn. Please consider supporting preborn at preborn.org slash wretched, preborn.org slash wretched. You know, what used to be a movie is now our sad reality. We're living in a world that's gone absolutely bonkers. So much so that six mads just aren't enough to describe it. Social media may be bombarding us left and right. Our Christian worldview may be under assault, but we have the dynamic duo of Todd Friel and Dr. Nathan Buznitz, and they're coming to the rescue with Wretched Worldview 2, tackling 22 of those pesky, thorny contemporary issues through a biblical lens, helping us to defend the biblical view on things like sexuality and gender, critical race theory, modesty and apparel, persecution, secular entertainment, environmentalism, 22 issues to be exact. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to Wretched.org, grab your copy of Wretched Worldview 2. And hey, while you're there, snag that study guide too, because it's the perfect companion for navigating this mad, 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 mad world with wisdom and grace. You're familiar with this sound. You're sitting in church. Your pastor is preaching. You have your John MacArthur study Bible open. The pastor is reading the scripture. And all of a sudden you hear everybody in church turning the page because they all have the same MacArthur study Bible. Why? Because it is so helpful to be able to read study notes underneath the verses to really grasp what God's word is trying to teach. How would you like to share the joy of putting a John MacArthur Study Bible into the hands of a believer in the Philippines, they typically make about 12 to $15 per, not hour, per day. It's a luxury item, and it would be such a blessing, $25 a Bible, four Bibles, $100, or perhaps you could send a Bible to a brother or sister in the Philippines every single month. Would you please consider doing that to bring joy to our brothers and sisters? Wretched.org slash Bible. Titles of Christ. In the Bible, Jesus is given many titles. 
that teach us about who he is and what he has done. Jesus is called the seed of the woman. Immediately after the fall of man, God promised a savior who would be the offspring of the woman. Jesus was born of a virgin, a divine savior born of the seed of woman. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Yes or no? Are you or are you not all things to all men that you might win some? This is Wretched Radio. How you answer that question depends on how you understand Paul's words. Was Paul saying that he would lose Christian lingo, start to paint Christianity in such a worldly way that the world wouldn't be offended so that eventually we might win some? I think the answer to that is an emphatic no. Paul was in the context of disputable dispensations. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, the issue at hand was meat sacrificed to idols. And I think we can actually get this one. If there were a meat market down the street from your home that only sold meat that was used at a sacrifice at a Satan temple or at an after school Satan club, (laughs) which apparently are gaining steam in this country, would you be comfortable with that? I suspect there are a lot of Christians who would go, no. Uh, No, there would be others who would go, why not? It's 20 cents a pound cheaper than Publix, which is probably true for everything. Wow, Publix is expensive. Nevertheless, you would have Christians that couldn't, they just couldn't do it. That's what was going on in the first century church. And in that context, Paul says, I got the liberty to eat that meat, but I'm not going to do it if it causes a brother or sister to stumble. He then uttered the words that are up for debate at the moment. He becomes all things to all men that he might win some. Some people are taking that to mean you really need to make sure you blend well with the culture. And the problem with this conversation on contextualization is that, well, yeah, that's sort of true. For instance, if Paul went to a foreign land and the custom there was to walk in the door, take off your shoes and socks, and then put your socks on your hands uh, to use as hand puppets, Paul would go, okay, uh, I'll, I'll become all things to all men. I, I'm not, I'm not going to make sock puppets the, the hill to die on. I, I don't want them to be focused on that and repelled by being inconsiderate. That's what he meant by all things to all men that he might win some. Paul wanted to focus on the gospel and not have unnecessary hurdles put up. But there are some who would say, no, it means that we really need to be cool. We need to look fashionable. We need to have expensive high top sneakers. We need to make sure that we don't have a pulpit because you know that's just too connected to that old stodgy liturgical church business that people don't really dig. So let's lose everything that resembles Christianity. No sanctuaries, just multi-purpose facilities, sound lights. It's a concert. It's fog machine. It's a rock and roll band. Look, look, we're becoming all things to all men that we might win some. Hold the phone, Henrietta. That's not what Paul intended. And yet. The trend continues to this day. An article in the American Former Reformer written by Michael Clary, who experienced living in a sea of contextualization, says this ultimately has very bad results. 
The effect of this, while well intended to win some, does the exact opposite. And he is concerned that the potency of the gospel message gets watered down by the constant pressure to be relevant to the culture. Writing this, pulpit ministry is a non-negotiable priority in the spiritual formation of a healthy church. When the church gathers for worship, the sheep are fed a spiritual meal. Though unbelievers may be present, the priority is on feeding the sheep. If contextualization for unbelievers becomes a driving priority, even for the preaching of the word, then the original intent of pulpit ministry is lost slowly, imperceptibly. The congregation then is conditioned to give too much thought about how the unbeliever hearing the message might feel. If the pastor preached about, say, homosexuality, many of the people may get antsy and nervous because, hey, what if a gay unbeliever is here and gets offended? He'll never come back and hear the gospel. Good intention. We want him to be one to the gospel. But that is the temptation of being a, quote, missional church that contextualizes. Don't say anything that offends anyone. Don't comment on virtually any hot potato issue because they might not come back to small group. So let's just leave those aside. And what happens? Christians lose their saltiness. We're no longer bright. We're dim. Furthermore, we ourselves start compromising. Well, you know, people are going to do what they're going to do. I mean, love is love. Whoa, what just happened? Contextualization. Back to the article from the American Reformer. Preaching must be engaging, relevant, and winsome to avoid offending unbelievers because they are the real target audience for the contextualizer. The sheep end up getting starved in order to reach the goats. The church looks like it's worshiping God, but it's really just a religious performance designed to accommodate unbelief. And if any of them are converted, then they too need to learn how to play the game. And what happens? We, this, is, this is why a lot of pastors, they absolutely positively will not preach book by book. You know why? Because in every one of those books, you're going to find something that causes the world to go, <gasps> every single one. There isn't a book in the New Testament that you will preach through where somebody in our current climate of political correctness and postmodernism wouldn't find offensive. And so they don't. So what do you get? You get a steady diet of contextualized sermons that are inoffensive to the goats. Now, he cites an, an example of this. The COVID, this is, this is from a group. This is Russell Moore, David French. In a video, this is what gospel-centered looks like. Revide it. This is regarding COVID. Now, this isn't a commentary on COVID or vaccines. This is an illustration. This fellow, this contextualizer said, the COVID vaccine is an image of redemption. Yes, the vaccine may have a distant origin story in abortion, but the past has been reworked and redeemed into something that saves lives. We can point to the vaccine and say, Jesus' redemption is kind of like that. Oh boy. Whoa. Now, again, the, I'm not getting into the COVID vaccine dispute. That is, take, that is taking a worldly story and saying Jesus is like that. 
no, he's not like that at all. He's not even kind of like that. And furthermore, it's using Christianity to encourage people to override their consciences. There were a lot of people, myself included, we had to study this all, didn't we? Hey, 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 how did you come up with this in these laboratories? Were babies sacrificed for the sake of this vaccine? That's a big problem. Well, this contextualizer would say, no, it's not because, you know, okay, fine. Babies died to make a vaccine. But, but it's a long time ago. And now the vaccines, they've saved so many people's lives. So yeah, it started out bad, but it ended up with such a good effect. That's like Jesus dying on a cross, man. It was bad, but look at all the good that came from it. And you find yourself going, well, what about my concern about babies dying? The contextualizer has overridden that because he's taken a contemporary story, a motif, and he's laid it on top of the Bible and said, this is like that. When the reality is, it's not. Vaccines are not a story of the gospel. Jesus is a story of the gospel. If you want to give me a testimony where somebody heard the gospel and got saved, that's a gospel story. But vaccinations are suddenly the gospel? This is contextualization at its worst. Finally, writes Mr. Clary, Christians end up telling the wrong story. Rather than telling the Bible's story in the vernacular of the culture, we end up telling the culture's story in the vernacular of the Bible. <laughs> That's cleverly phrased, isn't it? This is the concern of a Trojan horse called contextualization. And my question is, is it possible it has one hoof in your church? Let's be careful how we approach this, because we must agree that to, to an, a limited amount, we contextualize. How you would, how you would preach in Peru going to be a little different if you're aware of stuff. You're not going to use a Super Bowl illustration in Peru, most likely. I, I get it, America, it's international. I get it, but you get the point. You're, you're going to be mindful, but that is not to suggest that we shuck everything that is potentially offensive so that the world will dig us and maybe, just maybe, hopefully, cross your fingers, become a Christian. What is the remedy? to this type of contextualization. I, I think it's right before us in our Bibles, preaching line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And then the pastor simply can't contextualize. And if he does, it will become glaringly obvious that he has become a underhanded salesman. Until tomorrow, go serve your king.